everyone, I'm Dr. Susie Green, the founder and CEO of the Positivity Institute, and welcome to my new podcast, Coach Plus, the art and science of positive psychology coaching. I'll be chatting to both academics and practitioners who are working in the evolving field of positive psychology coaching. We'll be looking at the interplay between the complementary fields of positive psychology and coaching psychology within an evidence-based coaching context. I'm hoping to equip practitioners with both knowledge and skills, and most importantly, have a positive impact on their way of being as positive psychology coaches. Today, we're speaking with Jill McNaught, Jill is one of Australia's most experienced executive coaches with a background in psychology and business science. She has successfully supported the achievement of important personal, professional, career and organisational outcomes for CEOs, divisional heads, directors and potential leaders in leading Australian and global organisations. Jill has been a leader in the application of positive psychology science to coaching, a defining element when she first established her coaching business in 1999. Jill was involved in the initial launch of the Australian Psychological Society Coaching Psychology Interest Group and has been actively involved in the evolution of coaching psychology in Australia and globally since that time. Jill has also taught coaching and positive psychology at university master's level over several years. She's run professional development courses and presented at numerous conferences and symposia. Jill also served as a member of the Standards Australia Coaching Guideline Working Party, which developed the definitive guideline to coaching in organisations. Well, welcome, Jill, to the podcast. It's so wonderful to have you joining me today. Well, it's good to be with you, Susie. We've got a long association. Now, I have to say, Jill, you're a little bit of what I might call the quiet achiever when it comes to coaching psychology and very humble and modest, I would say. But I know for a fact that you have been a pioneer in this field, particularly, well, here in Australia where coaching psychology was born, as you know. So I think it'd be wonderful for people listening to the podcast to hear a little bit about your journey and I guess the evolution of coaching psychology and then into positive psychology coaching, which Mm -hmm. I'm really grateful for that you and I spent quite a bit of time in the early days sort of massaging how that was going to work as well. So, yeah, would you mind sharing a little bit of your journey? Yes, well, I think I've been very blessed with some of the uh, work experiences that I've had leading up to when coaching was being put on the map in Australia. And if I reflect on those particular experiences, the first one was six years working with Relationships Australia. And and just to sort of, as an aside, my coaching has been very much in organisations with leaders and a little bit of private practice stuff to start with, but not so much life coaching, we call it. Within with Relationships Australia, the model that we worked with was very, very much around systems, people systems, adult development, working with couples. We always took a solution-focused approach in terms of when people were talking about what wasn't okay in their lives, we then helped them develop a vision of, say, the relationship, what would it look like if you were happy with it. So it was always very much a positioning towards a, a preferred future. So that was very much integral to that work over six years. And then during that time, I was very blessed to have the opportunity to workshop with Steve Deschaise and Kim M. Seberg. It was a family therapy association in Canberra that brought them out to Australia. And I'm talking about the mid-80s. Yes. 
And that was just transformative for me as they brought their research around the solution-focused therapy approach from all the research they were doing at the Brief Therapy Centre in Milwaukee in the States. And they had videos of their work. Well, that just further informed me. (laughs) And the other thing I think that was part of that time when I was working with Relationships Australia was that I was doing some counselling for the Vietnam Veterans Association and they were encouraging us to use a survivor therapy approach. So if we think about the precursors for what we're doing in coaching today, it was very much about post-traumatic growth. Right. And so we would focus on, you know, how they survived, what the strengths that they noticed in themselves by which they got through those difficult times, how was that informed, you know, and built their resilience today. So it was a very positive focus so that it, it was quite a frustrating war that wasn't popular. It didn't really have an outcome. So to try to bring meaning out of that experience for them, and some of them, where I was working, there was an army base nearby, so there was a very solid supply of clients for this work, which is why I was invited in as a consultant. And I think just during that time, those sorts of approaches were really just resonated with the way I live my life. I think I was a born optimist in my nature. I know you talk about being humble, but I think I'm very future-oriented. I always look about the possibilities of life. So that was a core to my sort of personal philosophy, I think. And I think as coaches, we need to resonate with a way of being to be confusing in our work. So... That was what I was learning. And when I came, that was in the country. And then when I moved to Sydney, I was working in a university counselling service for six years. And very much around, we were encouraged to use brief approaches. So that that lent it to the cognitive behavioural approach. There was rational motive therapy, you know, from Albert Ellis at the time, where he sort of began that thinking, which was less about insight work and more about, you know, very quick approaches that get leverage on change. It always had to be brief. So solution-focused approaches helped enormously as well. And there was quite a lot of discussion, you know, during that time around performance psychology. So we were looking at what was happening in sports psychology in terms of how people could perform at their best. We had high achievers in the university looking to perform well and some of them with perfectionistic tendencies and, you know, what the, the ways they were undermining themselves. But also I was getting in touch with the fact that people needed to be doing what they felt they were good at, really loved most. So this was getting down to motivations, which yes. again precursors to what we've been looking at at research and coaching. And and the, the students that were failing were often doing courses because somebody else told them that was a good idea. It didn't relate to their personal interests. Yeah. It didn't resonate with their desired future. So we were doing a lot of that work to reposition people, students and staff as well, to be a little bit more authentic around what mattered to them and, and the sort of life they wanted to lead. So all of this work, just when coaching started to become popular, After I left the university, I went into private practice and that was drawing me into some organisational work because I had that background in relational work. I was often being asked into organisations where they had issues. And at the time I was forming this broad intention, this is where I think intentions are very helpful, that I really need to be working with the leaders and managers because some of this would be, if they had been managing this differently, this wouldn't, this mess that I'm being brought in to sort of try and mediate on and, and support just wouldn't have happened. 
So with that in the idea, then when I started to hear about coaching and I heard that there were all these coaches getting out there working with leaders and I was fortunate to meet John Matthews. You might know of John, but he and Anne built the what is now I think the Institute of Leadership Coaching. So I'd met John personally through Anne and, and he was coaching for a company called Source. So this was all the coaching was going on in Sydney. They were doing work with the Commonwealth Bank and others. And so I invited John up into the rooms where I had my private practice and I said, tell me about this coaching that you're doing. <laughs> tell me what you're doing. And the more we talked together, the more I realised that I was actually coaching. You were already coaching. I was exactly. already coaching. <laughs> and I just had to polish that up a bit and be a little bit more, just expand on my good questions, useful questions yeah. and things like that. But it's about what clients sign up for. And when you're working in private practice, I found that people didn't want to spend, you know, endless sessions on the problematical past. They really, really valued you helping them work towards desired futures. And it was always a very future-oriented approach, which brought more people back to the practice because, you know, that you could work briefly, but effectively to let them to get out there and lead happier lives. Yes. And I was drawn to that philosophically because I went off and studied Buddhism for two years during this time. And, you know, they were talking about this human realm, which is imperfect, full of suffering, but it's about the pathway to happiness. And so it's about people being their best selves. And this was all of what positive psychology started to talk about. That's right. How to be your best self, what are your values, character strengths. That all drew on the traditions, all the faith traditions around the world, which include Buddhism, but others. Which was emerging at the simultaneously as coaching psychology. Yeah. Mm, exactly. so, and you, you were involved at the very early days and I know had conversations and connections with Tony Grant and Michael Kavanagh at University of Sydney. And you were also involved in the initial setup of the interest group of coaching psychology yeah. here in Australia, Jill. Yeah, I had the good fortune to be on that first executive group. It was a very rich group and we almost we had a little bit almost like a peer supervision process there because I saw yeah. Tony up when I heard that he'd set up this coaching psychology unit. I thought, oh my God, it's happening in psychology <laughs> and, and we're now embracing it. You and I then went on, didn't we, very enthusiastically to run workshops for psychologists around positive psychology and coaching because we already had a lot of the skills. Then there was people like Patrick Williams that came out to Australia. Remember him? He he talked about the therapist becoming the coach and he argued very strongly for the traditions within psychology that were already there. You know, he talks about Carl Jung who believed in the power of connectedness and relationships as well as a future orientation. Yes. Hope was there. He talked about uh, Ericsson, who believed in the inherent ability of us to move towards wellness once all the, the negative things in our lives have been thwarted and dealt with. So, I mean, Maslow talked about that hierarchy of moving towards self-actualization. There was so much already there. And thank goodness for Seligman, he then, when he was president of the American Psych Society, he then positioned research to say, let's do more research around what, you know, enables people to have optimal functioning, high levels of well-being. And that's where it all took off. Exactly. And so, Jill, I'd have to say you probably, as far as I'm concerned, be the first, one of the first coaching psychologists, not just in Australia, but in the world, and definitely probably the first female or one of the first. If um, Again, there may have been some people that were doing it and weren't 
identifying as coaching psychologists at the time. I think there were people who were using coaching approaches but perhaps had not self-identified as much. And I know you still retain some clients at the moment and you've had very active practice over the years. Mm. Is there any advice or recommendations around the use of research for practitioners, coaching practitioners? Oh, we're trained to just work from an evidence base, Susie, and and I think coaches also always talk about evidence-based coaching. I think it's a no-brainer now. Yes. And what I'm noticing, you know, from my re- recent teaching experience at ACAP, that coaches are now embracing what are, you know, real evidence-based, the, the theory behind human behaviour change because so much of our work in coaching is really helping people modify some of their behaviours, you know, if we put various frameworks like emotional intelligence on, it's about self-regulation and about, but it's about interpersonal relating. That's all where my work with Relationships Australia was so helpful because it's helping people, particularly working with teams, about sitting with difference, being curious around other people's ideas and thoughts and not because they don't agree with you doesn't make what we think wrong moving away from polarised thinking to the curiosity to build on each other's ideas and get a synergy. And so that's been very helpful for me working with executive teams. Yeah. And then I find that then books come out and Patrick Lencioni and all these people, and they sort of write about this stuff. But it's really where we were kind of working at a very fundamental level. So I, I feel very blessed to have had that early life experience working in counselling and psychology and being able to segue just very evenly into coaching. Absolutely. And as you know, there are lots of coaches across the world that actually don't even know about coaching psychology, Jill. And I presented at a conference in Italy last year and I asked, it was an ICF conference, how many people had heard of coaching psychology and it would have been less than 20% in the audience that put their hands up. So it's something that I'm passionate about. Um, I'd love to hear more about your thoughts about the benefits of learning around, I guess, the underpinning science or the evidence base for coaching and how that can be so helpful to those that are already coaching. I mean, I'm thinking back to this, my more recent teaching experience. There were a lot of non-psychologists on that course, but they were very open to learning about psychological models. I mean, I've moved a little bit more away from cognitive behavioural coaching to acceptance commitment coaching. Lovely. And that was one of the models that we were introducing on that course. We can think of other frameworks from psychology, transactional analysis, and, and there's a lot of thinking from psychology because it's the whole science of human behaviour that is just so important for coaches and they understand it. I don't think there's a coach today that is not looking to expand their practice around a much deeper understanding of human behaviour change and how to get change that's more sustainable and then moving away from telling, you know, ask before you tell. Yes. But I think there is a bit of guidance sometimes around proffering ideas for people to think about, reflect on, would that work? So I just think they're going off and they're all doing the Masters in Coaching Psychology. You were there yourself, Susie, teaching on that course. I think there's a huge appetite for bringing psychology into their coaching. We're about to launch, actually, Jill, I'm not sure if you're aware, a a brief Foundations of Coaching Psychology. It'll be a digital program, which I created, basically because we have requests every week to learn more, but not everyone wants to do a master's. So stay posted for that. But I also know that you have been a big supporter and provider of supervision, coaching supervision. Mm -hmm. And in fact, 
you were talking about it with others early on, way before coaches actually saw that as an integral part of their practice. Would you like to comment on the importance of supervision or, again, any thoughts or reflections you have around supervision for coaching? Well, I sort of reflect on my own learning and how much I have gained from supervision over the years. And when I went into coaching, when I set up my coaching company in Australia, that was about 1999, there were no people within my profession that I felt were seniors, peers, experienced people. So I went to the UK to Alice Hardingham. She'd come out to Australia and presented a workshop. I got in touch with Alison and she became my supervisor through those early years. And she was just reinforcing, yes, you are staying in coaching mode. Yes, this is legit. Because she had transitioned from being a psychologist with a family therapy background as well into the coaching and she was coaching executives, training coaches at, at Henley. And she wrote the book called The Coach's Coach, which is really about what she was coaching me in. Right. So I see supervision and coaching about using a coaching approach, but also all the stuff that we do as a coach, affirming their strengths, affirming what they're doing well, helping them consolidate good practice, but then looking at some of those dilemmas. So it to me, it's just a very rich way to learn, but I also think it's a discipline to encourage us to be reflective about our own work because that's what we're encouraging our coaches to do. We're taking them into a reflective place. And I don't think we can take people any further than we've taken ourselves. And so I always pay a lot of attention to my own personal development. Beside my bed, I have the Daily Stoic. Every night I read, Love that. Do, do my little daily reading and meditation. But I think the disciplines that we have in our own personal lives around our spirituality, uh, how we pursue our good character, living the virtuous life to be happy, as it were. I think that's very important. And I'm very drawn to the more recent research around, which is now giving us the evidence base for compassion and how important compassion is. Compassion and self-compassion. Self-compassion and compassion for others, working compassionately. And so when I'm working with people with a strong inner critic, the first thing I do is get them to do the self-compassion scale and start to look at how much is self-judgment getting in the road to self-kindness. Yes. It's not sort of moving away from change and challenging ourselves to be better, but it's saying we're all human beings, you know, we're flawed, we're vulnerable. Brene Brown's done a lot around this, hasn't she? She's, she's really put it out there like it's okay to be vulnerable. That's right. And on some of the other podcast interviews, we've had a bit of a discussion slash debate around how explicit one may be in introducing positive psychology research into their coaching practice. Now, as you know, Jill, I love the science. So I actually prime or, you know, introduce my clients at the beginning that I may, if they're willing and open to it, share some of the research. Now, some of the coaches lap that up and they actually want more. There are others that go, just go easy, Susie. Just, you know, hold that lightly. How do you stay on top of the the research? Question number one. And number two, how do you thoughtfully apply it in your own practice? Because of my work is with fairly senior executives, and they, these are very intelligent people as a population. It's very different when you're in private practice or other areas where you've got a more diverse population. And they're much more persuaded by something that's got an evidence base. So if I'm proposing something, if we, for instance, if we're talking about strengths, you know, I'll talk about the, the power of strengths in terms of performance and using strengths. So we're talking about how they work with their people. 
we're talking about being compassionate as a leader. I'm talking about how, you know, I'll give them the research around that. It's not enough to say it's important to be persuaded. I'm not going to be an evangelical kind of spiritual guru, but I'm talking very pragmatically with them about this helps build psychological safety. You'll get more innovative thinking. People will experiment more. It'll be safer to make mistakes. Things like that, and people be more productive, and this will do. This makes good business. Yeah. So for them, it's about the business case of what you're doing, and they're not going to be persuaded in any direction often if there doesn't there isn't good evidence that this works. So I'm very transparent about the evidence behind some of the things that I use, and always share that. And yeah. I find that coaches are very they're very appreciative of that, and I'll send articles. I mean, one of the places you're asking me about how I keep in touch with research, I think if we go to the University of Penn website, they've got all the journals that we can go into there, so I won't list them all, but Journal of Positive Psychology and Journal of Happiness and whatever, there's plenty there to go. And, you know, as a member of APS, we can go into ProQuest and so on. But what I've also found quite helpful is being a member of the Institute of Coaching at McLean. Yes, it's a wonderful organisation. An affiliate of Harvard Business School. Yes. And they frequently would put out research doses. And, I mean, I just think when you align yourself to a hub of people who are embedded in gathering all the research, they're distilling it all for you. And so, I mean, they often bring research that I've already perhaps read elsewhere. Yeah. that's kind of a busy practitioner's approach to line yourself up with people who are dedicated to bring you the evidence. That's their whole mantra is to bring you the evidence of good coaching and what the research is out there. So I encourage anybody listening to this to join up them, you know, I haven't been paid to sell for them. (laughs) No, no. And they often have uh, LinkedIn. You can sign up for a free LinkedIn webinar as well. And that's the other part of it. By being a member there, I've talked about their research doses, but also they alert you to interesting webinars. And out of that sometimes, you know, it's like this more recent book that I've read, Happiness Through Goal Setting. I was just interested in what, uh, this is Christian Ehrlich and Sashenka Milston. Right. And their book, and it's it's about the reasons why we pursue the most important goals. You know, we've been thinking about self-concordant goals and the importance of values and, and do things that we feel passionate about. But they also talk about the reasons why we might pursue goals. And they talk about do we do them for pleasure, we do for altruism, they're going to be the more happiness-producing ones, or are they about self-esteem or sheer necessity? Yes. I'm staying with a job I don't like but I can't afford to leave because I need the money. So it's a bit like that's my current goal is to stay here, but it's not going to bring me great happiness. So it's just another window on goal setting. And I think, I mean, goal setting is so sort of integral to coaching, but I think just the nuances from some of the more other more recent research is always interesting to read. It is. And as the, the research evolves as well, I went to a presentation this morning looking at the psychological construct of ambition, which actually there hasn't been a lot of psychological research on it. The Hogan's, which you're very familiar with, Mm. talk about ambition and it being, I guess, I think it was the biggest predictor of leader emergence, leadership emergence, those that are higher ambition. And it was only a brief presentation this morning and I didn't get a chance to ask, but I guess my question was, you know, for what reason, in terms of what you were referring to, the happiness through goals, are you doing it? 
the status or some you know mm-hmm. underlying need that was never fulfilled or is it because you want to make a difference in the world so mm-hmm. I, I think ambition for ambition's sake but understanding and exploring what are those reasons that are driving that ambition well yes and I mean the self-esteem might come through mastery and if we think about what are the drivers of, of well-being mastery is in there and so I think building our confidence and experiencing success in in doing things well is is important and getting recognition is is important too in our early growth but you get to a point in your life where you, you don't need that because you can acknowledge those things for yourself so it's really to me it's almost that development that adult development path Yes. I think Jennifer Garvey Berger articulates that model really nicely. And I like that way where you get to that self-authoring position in your life and it's about what's congruent for me, what what is important to me and being very authentic. There's a lot out there. Sarah, Mm. I know that you utilise a lot of assessment, different assessments, or you have over the years Mm. as well. Are there any that you would like to recommend or refer to some of the coaches that yeah. you utilize. you mentioned strengths, you use the VR and you use strengths profile as well. I'm aware. Yes, I use both of those because I think with leadership, it is about having good character. And so I bring them back to the character strengths in terms of how they're living their lives and yes. what, you know, how they're using those character strengths, but also with there's 24 of them, our journey in life is to embrace all of them progressively a little in, in small ways. We'll always have our top ones. So I think if we have to do something very brief, I do choose that. But if we can expand that into the strengths profile, I think that also helps enormously in terms of what they're using in their role and why they might be struggling if they've been elevated to a senior position and maybe they're not very strategic naturally and it's not one of their core strengths. So it might be one they have to develop. And it's about developing increasing perspective taking. And it's I think in that adult development model, it's about... In the world of today, we're man- they're managing leaders are managing a lot of complexity, and and it does call for perspective taking, sitting back and just surveying the landscape. And when things come up, it's just not jumping too quick to decisions around things, but really thinking it through and consulting and working collaboratively, you know, drawing on the strengths of the team and peers. The other assessment or tool, if we might like to call it that, is one that you and I. Uh, utilized as part of our program we ran at Accenture, which you worked with me on for mm. a number of years, mm. called the Reflected Best Self Exercise. And for yes. our US-based listeners, coaches, you may be familiar with it. I haven't seen it used here in Australia very much, but it's been extremely powerful. I, I was, if I'm really honest, a bit cynical about its use here in Australia. Jill, would you like to just briefly make any comments about that exercise? Well, I think that gets back to the heart of character, that when yes. we're working with people, particularly if they're in senior roles, we've got enough mischievous behaviour going on at <laughs> senior levels among some leaders, haven't we, that we're appealing to how they really want to be as a person. Most people who behave in ways that perhaps they're not proud of are much happier when they embrace a best self that's actually a little bit more virtuous. But I don't like to put those words into them. I say, what does it look like? You know, you know, how are you living your life? How how are you showing up as a person? So it brings them back to the person I want to be. And, and we're all on that kind of journey in life. And we know that happiness is really going to be an outcome of living a good life. Yes. We've got plenty of authors that talk about the good life and you know, I mean, Hugh McKay's book, he talks about 
you know, the good life is living in service of others. Yes. So for leaders who are about the organisation and not about themselves, not you know, so this is leaving aside narcissistic behaviours, it's really inviting people to reflect on those things. So I think that's very good. Going back, you mentioned the Hogan's. I think, you know, Bob Hogan always talks about, you know, to be successful, it's about, you know, getting on to then get ahead. Yes. And it's, a very, it's very much around our personalities and how we manage our interrelationships with others. So understanding who we are and how we operate and where we perhaps our shadow side, how we might overshoot under stress. I think that's a good deep dive. I don't always get to do that full assessment because some people don't have an appetite for too much. It's something that I have I use frequently and it's very, very helpful yes. to have that. I always think looking at our motives and values and interests, you know. So there's alternative assessments for the MVPI, Hogan's MVPI, to which is for the um, management research groups, individual directions inventory, and I'm a bit of a favourite of that. So it's really what what people want. I don't, I don't like to sort of be too prescriptive about assessments, and sometimes it. You know, the other assessments might come up that I might use because it emerges, for instance, they've got difficulties with conflict. And so the Thomas Kilman conflict yes. mode is a really useful one because it doesn't say there's one right way. It's about the situation. There are times when you just don't go there. It's useful to avoid. But if avoidance is your predominant pattern, then you're not engaging in useful ways to resolve conflict. So I, I like those sort of um, assessments that are dimensional and not overly prescriptive, but it's they're nuanced in terms of encouraging us to be flexible in our approaches, not just have one size fits all. But you know, people always feel they've got to be like a bullet at a gate and jump in there and be confrontational. It's just understanding: is this going to be a worthwhile conversation here? Is this person up for feedback? Yes. Are they ready for it? Is this the right time? I think it's just having discretion around our behaviours a little. It really does speak to, doesn't it, ongoing professional development and our own personal uh, growth. Coaches, I mean, there are many one day or less coaching courses that you can do that would give you a basic process or framework. But Mm -hmm. I think it's pretty clear and you've made that clear today how important that way of being which is that mm. crucial component of, of, I would say, being a great coach, and that's mm. that commitment to ongoing development. But, Jill, there's mm. so much I could talk to you about, and uh, unfortunately we don't have a lot of time left. Out of all of your years of uh, experience, are there any words of wisdom that you could leave with us today for those coaches listening and perhaps at the beginning of their coaching journey? Well, I, when I look back on my own career, the things I've valued most have been the relationships I've had with peers, the learning groups I've been part of. You know, when I went into coaching and I hadn't done a lot of work in organisations, I, I became a member of a, of a learning group. We called ourselves a Warburton group because we first had our retreat at Warburton in Victoria. But they weren't all psychologists, but they were organisational consultants John Bailey was in that group and he was head of the entrepreneurial program at at Swinburne. And I've I've just learned so much from engaging with peers around their own ideas. And I just think to be a lifelong learner, we need to be curious, interested in what other people's thoughts are, put our own ideas out there for reflection on, individual supervision, peer supervision groups increasingly. But I think it's just to always have a growth orientation and that's what we're bringing to our clients. 
but to me that I'm most grateful for the learning I've had through engagement with others. Yeah. The self-included, Susie, you know, just the swapping of ideas, the, the putting it out there. When we formed that interest group in coaching psychology, that was all about coming together to share our work and what we knew and what we did and reflect on it and share research that we'd found in everybody sort of pooled their resources. So there was some richness in those exchanges. Absolutely. We've come a long way, haven't we, now with a dedicated division of coaching psychology in the British Psychological Society. Yes, yes. And do you know, Australia was the first that I'm aware of that actually had a special interest group in coaching psychology. That's right. And I, I think we can hand it to Tony Grant who started that coaching psychology course at Sydney. Absolutely. In a way, but it sort of elevated it into the area of psychology but we were also at the time when I was on that national committee executive we were liaising with the British group around forming their own special interest group because they had heard about what we were doing and so theirs came afterwards and I don't think there was one in the states at the time. No there wasn't and I think because Mm -hmm. coaching sort of emerged initially out of the states and then coaching psych started here I know Stephen Palmer has tried quite hard to do that. But I do hope you'll take a listen to the interview with Robert Fizzlazdino. He absolutely gets coaching psychology as a US citizen and we're hoping that he's going to um, illuminate that uh, for us over in the US as we progress. Well, aren't we lucky, aren't we lucky that Seligman raised the banner around the year 2000, I think it was, where he just started to shift the whole focus of psychological research. And now we've, we've got a, an increasing evidence base building on the earlier theorists and, and what they were putting out there. And, and coaching being the perfect methodology or approach to apply that that research are just, as I say, best friends, really. Well, yes, I'm, I'm a little bit biased towards a coaching approach because the evidence base for long-term psychotherapeutic approaches, and I don't want to speak ill of that approach because I think there's a place for some considered connection and forming a good healthy relationship with someone when your previous history has been so flawed but I think increasingly there's more evidence that taking a more forward moving approach is got much better outcomes for people absolutely and you know there's some pretty woeful outcomes when people have stayed stuck in therapeutic approaches for a long period of time I think it's a timing of when you make the shift. And, you know, I've, I've worked with trauma and some pretty miserable stuff that people need to have validated and then we reframe it and then we look at how they survived and move forward. But it's always when you make that shift and start asking questions around how do you want your life to be, they almost sort of sit upright in the chair. There's a change in body right. posture, energy in the room. And so for us to be sustainable in our in our work, we need to be working in these more positive ways because it's very depressing to be working with the really sad, unhappy things that happen to people in their lives. That's right. And I think one of Tony Grant's, one of his last papers looked at the combination of taking a solution-focused approach and creating positive emotions. In It wasn't just the positive emotions. It wasn't just the solution focus. It was that combination that mm-hmm. led to more positive outcomes than just taking a problem focused approach and if I could just make a brief um, note about insight work because it has come up in coaching that people are now looking at family of origin exploration in coaching yes and which is what we we did in in relationships Australia always did the family of origin for both to help them understand what their learning histories were and how that was shaping the way they were behaving today that that was a learned thing and they could now learn different ways of being 
I, I think that's got some great value in coaching and I but but you don't have to go there and unpack it too much and I always take that view that did, our parents did the best they knew how absolutely and we're not, so we don't go in a judging way no bag the past but I do find it's helpful often it's been helpful for the coaches to understand that the way they're behaving now is what they've learned it's not something genetically driven or something that they're going to be stuck with. That's not who they are. Yeah. It's just what they've learned. And therefore, it opens them up to new learnings and new ways of doing. And that's where I think coaching needs to introduce strategies and ways of being. That's right. And that's where that compassion, self-compassion piece comes in too. Yes, yeah, non-judging. And, and likewise, non-judging of the families that we grew up in, that we could all reflect back on how we would like to have done some things differently or had the experience a bit differently. But I think that's come up in coaching more recently, they're using family of origin, but I think it needs to be used quite delicately without too much judgment of family. Judgment of the behaviours, yes, but not the people. That's right. I think we could have a whole podcast just on that, which I know is an area of your expertise. And maybe in another series, I'll I'll get you back to talk about that because I love that as well. But thank you so much for joining us today. You've been the most incredible, inspiring mentor and supervisor to me in my career as as a coach and coaching psychologist, which I'm very grateful for. And I'm sure your wisdom is going to touch a lot of people uh, listening to this podcast as well. So thank you, Jill. Well, thank you, Susie. And I'd like to add that when we're doing supervision, we're actually learning ourselves as well. I think it's sometimes it's a (laughs) two-way. Absolutely. Thank you for for what I've learned from you. (laughs) Thanks, Jill. Thank you so much for listening to Coach Plus, the art and science of positive psychology coaching. If you're new to the field, check out my two co-edited texts, Positive Psychology Coaching in Practice with Professor Stephen Palmer and Positive Psychology Coaching in the Workplace with Wendy Smith and Professor Alona Bonniewell. You might also like to check out our new Academy Plus and use the tab on our website, thepositivityinstitute.com.au, where you can learn more about positive psychology coaching with me. Don't forget to sign up for our free e-news when you're there, where you'll be kept in the loop for all things positive. Bye for now.